0: Welcome to Fourth Estate, the show where journalists talk journalism. We are broadcasting, as always, from the studios of 2SCR 107.3 in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, to which we pay our respects. My name is Shane Anderson. Today, that is the 21st of March, Mark's Harmony Day. Otherwise known as the United Nations International Day for the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. We approach this celebration with a sense of incredible sadness, loss, and anger. In Christchurch last Friday, mass shootings at the Masjid al noor and Linwood Masjid mosques left 50 dead and just as many injured. This took place during Friday afternoon prayers. The youngest victim, a boy of three, his name Muqad Ibrahim. The shooter was quickly identified as a 28-year-old Australian man from the New South Wales town of Grafton. He not only live-streamed the attack, broadcasting for an incredible 17 minutes, but he wrote a lengthy manifesto riddled with the ironic language of meme culture and references to other mass shootings. This was also published online. With the help of social media, the video and manifesto went viral. But that wasn't the only platform that gave the extremist message a helping hand. Despite New Zealand police pleading media and citizens not to share the video, several Australian media organisations broadcast footage and screenshots. Others quoted the manifesto, some before it was confirmed the man was in fact the shooter. It sparked an important conversation about the ethics of mainstream media in Australia, and their role in giving a platform to extremism and racist ideologies, a conversation that speaks volumes to a distinct lack of diversity in our newsrooms. That is what we are here to discuss. Joining me are three guests. First off, Janine Kalik, journalist and digital producer. Janine has also worked for News Corp in the past. Janine, welcome.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me.
0: And next we have Abdullah Kamel, reporter for SBS Arabic and formerly of BBC Arabic in Cairo. Abdullah, thank you for travelling all the way from our today. Thank you. And joining us on the line is Colleen Morell, Associate Professor of Journalism at Swinburne University. Before that, she's also been news editor at the BBC, AP, and she's worked for CBC, ABC and SBS Television. Colleen, thank you for joining us. Thank you. So let's start by talking about the response to the attacks. So New Zealand police were urging people not to share the video. That said, uh, six minutes of raw video was posted by news.com.au. 10 Daily embedded it onto their site. Sky News showed excerpts. I guess this is really a question of what uh, editorial decisions might have gone into people thinking that it is okay to show this video. Janine, you've been working in a lot of newsrooms. What kind of editorial decisions go into whether or not to show images that will shock and possibly hurt people? Look, when news breaks,
1: things move really quickly in newsrooms and people have to make snap decisions about what they're going to upload online and publish. However, The fact that newsrooms are overwhelmingly white and middle class and don't have representation of people of colour or people from Muslim backgrounds uh, in positions where they can intervene and say, hang on, that's not not right. Think about this for a second. This actually has real-life impacts. And I'm not sure what it is. I just think it's a, a lack of being informative about these things, a lack of exposure, and also the dehumanisation of Muslims and Arabs and brown people and Indigenous people in general, our judgement lapses somewhere.
0: Yeah, Colleen, this has been an area of, of your research. Can you tell me what you found?
2: Look, I, as I said, I used to work as a news editor for Associated Press For several years so I used to have to make these kinds of decisions and about what is shown and AP is not a broadcaster in itself it's a you know it's an agency that supplies broadcasters so I found it really interesting to go back to them and say well what would you put out and a few years ago I spoke to news agency editors but also editors from French uh, media from British media from Australian media To find out what they would do under certain circumstances. And I feel now that there's been quite a change in opinion here about what's acceptable to show. And that wasn't the case so much in the past, except for the French. The French changed and just said, we don't want to show this kind of, you know, violence anymore, wherever it comes from. And we're not, um, you know, a propaganda arm of ISIS, or we're not a propaganda arm of whoever. Yeah, was there a
0: particular turning point?
2: I think it was 2015-16, the editor of Le Monde said, "Um, I'm not prepared to name the perpetrators anymore. I'd rather concentrate on victims. And, you know, taking away some of that power, and obviously with Christchurch, that was very much the aim of the perpetrator, because this person filmed it live, and sent it straight out. It's not the first time that this has happened, by the way, um, You know, because people have uploaded deaths before. But in the end, I went back to the agencies this week, and I said, well, what did you show about Christchurch? And they all did say that they showed stills. So AFP said, we showed three kinds of stills in order to tell the story, and those three stills were two stills to do with the armaments that this guy was carrying, and one still was his face.
0: Right. So there's this idea of, of what images or video that a journalist needs in order to be able to tell a story properly. Abdullah, the team over at SBS Arabic did not air the video, uh, did not quote the manifesto, did not name the shooter. Could you tell me why you decided to do that?
3: I think when, you, when a story break in a newsroom, you you kind of invoke the infrastructure you have been laying out for as much as you had your regular days. So you go to your contacts that you are close to, you apply your editorial guidelines that you didn't need to invoke in regular days, and it really shown the structure of your uh, your kind of newsroom, what what are you working with, and what's your agenda, what are you leaning for. So f- I think for SBS Arabic, we we decided from early on not not to do this. We felt it would be insensitive. Our program manager sent an email, said no one shows this. When you go to the commercial, uh, commercial channels, in the far right, you have Sky News Australia that kept playing it. So there was a certain moment that all commercial channels in Australia were saying it's not okay okay to show either the video or the manifesto but then sky news australia carried on i think this lays out what kind of news rooms it is and it's really not just immediate decision after the attack it's really how the newsroom were built in regular days.
0: Yeah, you do raise an interesting point there about this idea of public interest. But clearly what we've got here is newsrooms who imagine their public is, I guess, interested in different things. Uh, does anyone have any thoughts on this? It's
3: it's more of a sensational. If you are a public broadcaster, you, you are always reminded of your charter, of what are you here to do. It's part of this education, there is ethics, there is there's other things that that you should be doing and i think in commercial channels it, it goes more for a sensational kind of less serious more entertaining kind of angles
0: yeah janine you have experience in both public broadcasters and commercial ones uh, what are your thoughts on this
1: look i think after the the christchurch uh, terrorist attack We've been focusing, of course, on how the media has been covering this, and that's a really worthwhile conversation to have. And uh, a lot of media organisations need to reflect upon their editorial policies and their their code of ethics. But I also think we need to be paying attention to the platforming of some of these far right views um, that have been broadcast without much much challenge. And the lack of hard hitting interviews with the likes of Pauline Hansen or Mark Latham or Fraser Anning. And they really espouse a lot of the views that the white supremacist had.
0: Yeah, look, there is some more uh, research from the One Path Network. They had a look at the Murdoch Press over one year and found that they ran nearly 3,000 negative stories about Islam. Um, and that included 152 front pages that related to Islam or Muslims in a in a negative way. Um, Colleen, look, you have a lot of experience working internationally in newsrooms. Is this a is this a common pattern that you see?
2: Well, I, th- I think diversity in newsrooms is a very big uh, you know issue and challenge. And the last time that I interviewed this set of editors in well, my colleague and I interviewed editors from six different countries, but I asked the French editors quite persistently, you know, did they have a diverse workforce? And they were a bit baffled by this question and kept saying, Uh oh, well, we do our best. Um, not many people apply. <laughs> and I found that rather hard to believe. And secondly, I said, do you do stories about the Muslim community, you know, that are good news stories. When there isn't something going on that you're covering from a terrorism point of view, do you do stories about these communities? And I was told almost universally, well, no, news is news. If there's no news going on, we don't cover those stories. But In Australia, you know, there's been a very toxic debate for a long time about that equates asylum seekers with bad people. And I definitely think that that's has added to, you know, the alienation that's happened um, in terms of pushing this community into a bad space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And in terms of newsroom diversity, we did hear this week uh, from a young journalist, Rashna Farouk, uh, who wrote an op-ed for the ABC about her decision to quit Sky News. That is such a tough choice to make, especially at the start of your career. Um, Look, Janine, you're a journalist of colour working in a media industry that is mostly white and middle-upper class, What is it like being in these newsrooms?
1: It can be really lonely, uh, legitimately. And I'm trying to think of a few examples, but I've had racist comments flung at me. It's just there's such a sense of normalcy about it. Um, We're functioning within silos, and whether they're conservative or even seemingly progressive, there's still this sense of they're very out of touch with broader Australia and broader Australia is diverse Australia. It's not just regional Australia, regional white Australia. So people often stick to things that they are familiar with. Uh, and, and you're always sort of trying to convince this overwhelmingly white newsroom or these editors, why this story is important. You know, for example, they're was a story about white supremacists and the alt-right that I've been investigating and looking into. And I tried recently to have this conversation with a a couple of people within the newsroom and there was just no sense of urgency about it. And I knew that if this conversation was about Islamic extremists, it would have been snapped up.
0: Yeah, uh, Abdullah, you work for SBS Arabic. You have a very good, strong idea of the audience that you're speaking to. Can you tell me what your news priorities are when you're broadcasting news specifically for the Arabic-speaking community in Australia?
3: Well, I think when you, when there's stuff that's related to this community in the broader sense, we do air it. So when something happened like Fraser Anning made in speech, this was a big news for us, when... Um, when there's like the Berk Street attacks, this was also a uh, big news for us.
0: Let's go back to Fraser Anning for a second. How did you report on Fraser Anning's comments? What were your editorial choices there?
3: Honestly, we did report extensively on Fraser Anning's uh, comments because it, because it was outrageous. It was targeting big segment of our community. But the things you hear, from 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 the community in our talkback, it's they they say this kind of character is quite irrelevant. They know that he's on the fringes of uh, Australian politics. But also when when we talk to other community leaders like the Grand Mufti, he was quite. Y- you can tell he was quite annoyed by the fact that this is the main conversation we're having on Monday instead of like like what Muslim community want in order to counter Islamophobia, what Muslim community, what is the arrangement of the funeral, should they have a memorial, should they have a state funeral, like to focus more on the victim. So it it happened on Friday, but then on Monday, everyone is talking about how Fraser Anning has no remorse. When you have the Grand Mufti, which is quite, figure in the community. He's a, he's, he's a main community leader. He's a grand mufti of both Australia and New Zealand. And he met Scott Morrison twice, one on Saturday, one on Sunday. But no one reported on this, except us. And the reason no one reported on it is uh, no one asked, really.
1: Janine, your thoughts? Yeah, it's simply outrageous, but it does not surprise me whatsoever. On Monday, sunrise, interviewed Pauline Hansen. This is a few days after the terrorist attack. They brought her on instead of actually speaking to people within the Muslim community, which in some ways can also be difficult because, of course, you know, the Australian Muslim community has for a long time felt very much under siege. It's a community under siege. And so there's a lot of confusion about wanting to engage with the media. And I've had that experience myself uh, in people not wanting to have a bar of journalists in the media. And you really can't blame them. And I think it just comes down to not seeing Muslims and non white community minority groups as three dimensional. I mean, They just happened to be this this statistic, this happened, it was awful, that's it. There was no in-depth reportage. And that's just so
0: disappointing, not surprising. But do you think that news organisations in Australia would have been so quick to air the video if the shootings had been in a church instead of a mosque?
1: No, of course not
0: they would have exercised better
1: judgment and that only comes down to the fact that the people making those decisions within the newsrooms would likely have more of a familiarity and affiliation and association um you know with christianity i mean going back to what was said about egg boy there was this piece that was published in news.com.au today by joe hildebrand basically saying well egg boy is not a hero and be an insult to the, the 50 people who died in the Muslim community. But if he had actually spoken to many people within the Muslim community, they were cheering. They were just like, yes, go Egg Boy.
0: If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 4th Estate on 2SCR 107.3. I'm joined by my guests, Janine Kalik, Abdallah Kamel and Associate Professor Colleen Murrell on the line from Swinburne University. We are unpacking the Australian media's response to the Christchurch attacks. Uh, Let's move for a second to social media. So this week, Scott Morrison called for a crackdown on social media companies. We've had some telcos blocking access to sites hosting the videos, including 4chan 8chan. there's also been calls for Facebook to end their live streaming service. I'm just wondering, as journalists, what you think about the fact that there almost seems to be two separate conversations happening—one about the media's responsibility and one about social media's responsibility. Where do you guys fall in this debate?
3: I, I, I do think it's a different conversation, but I do think that it's quite—it's quite late that we are having this conversation about a far-right supremacist and. Websites, because I think since 2014 up until now the Muslim radicals had like a very successful, massive crackdown on the internet. So basically, the jihadist has nowhere to go, nowhere to hide. They always, always like they open a channel, you close it. They try to put in Twitter; it's really hard to uh, to maintain their accounts are being suspended. They use very, very basic. Kind of forums to move their speeches, like Cobham based. Uh, this is stuff like this that's very basic and very unpopular. So they have been pushed to the very fringes of the internet. So if you are a regular user and you want you want to access this kind of material, you virtually can't. But now you have uh, you have websites like Daily Stormer. It's 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 a Nazi. Uh, uh, website and it operates on, on the internet and it does have has server, a website, a host and they have this on the side they have this uh, like this does not incite violence but it does so if you have this kind of benign explanation on the side of your website does this mean you are allowed to post Nazi and new Nazi stuff we know that 4chan and 8chan we know that it has been operating since 2000, and at the beginning, there was, like, a group called Politically Incorrect, and they were sharing, like, like Hitler memes, like... It's, it's known. It's in the, in the public domain.
0: The kind of memes that were in the terrorist manifesto.
3: Exactly. He's making reference all the time to his friends in 4chan and later in 8 channel.
0: It does play on this idea that these ideologies are on the fringe. But Janine, I'm wondering if you could speak to the fact that these ideas have become very normalized on social media. Uh, what's your experience of Twitter? Absolutely.
1: Uh... I, unfortunately, I don't see a lot of these opinions and sort of the the ironic memes as fringe. They are quite uh, normalised and mainstreamed. I mean, there is this subculture, this Australian group of white nationalists who um, self-identify as dingoes. And I've received a few comments as well uh, about... You know anti race mixing and how Arabs are backwards and barbaric, and you know go back to to your Muslim lands where they'll rape you for dressing the way you dress and speaking the way you speak. And I also hesitate to be talking about it here and now because I feel like even discussing it is giving them some kind of uh, credibility when that shouldn't be the case.
0: Yeah, one of the things that. Uh, really struck me about the rhetoric around uh, kind of social media's role in this attack in particular is this idea that it's a product of and for social media. Um, The Atlantic, for example, said that social media is a terrorist's best friend. Um, But Colleen, I'm wondering if you might be able to Tease out a bit more the relationship between extreme ideas and mainstream media because it is something that we have seen a lot of this week.
2: Um, I think that there, I think the relationship between mainstream media and social media is quite interesting on this because basically social media and citizen journalists have taken, usurped a lot of the importance of journalists. Um, You know, the whole point of journalists was to be witnesses to things and also to be the center of the universe. And now, you know, journalists appreciate that, or have to appreciate that uh, a lot of what's going on is actually going on outside of the mainstream media and that sometimes that's competitive. And therefore, when social media areas are running things that mainstream media aren't, then sometimes the mainstream media think, we have to run that kind of thing because, look, they're running it over there and we're the media, we should be telling these messages and, and not just leave it to social media. So I, I do think there's a problem there insofar as, you know, mainstream media is competitive on some of these fronts and thinking, well, we need to be showing some of this stuff. And that can be from the point of view of we need to air it, to show it, to get it out there into the light. Um, But obviously, people with uh, those kinds of views love a platform too. So that's always an issue that goes on between airing something so that people can make up their minds, because often people will use these platforms and be so dreadful that people will make up their minds against them, or not showing them at all. And I think, I can't remember if it was YouTube, was saying, well, we actually have trouble sometimes finding this hate speech because sometimes it looks just like right-wing politics to us.
0: Please correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the things I've noticed is a lot of the conversation about social media taking the blame seems to be happening on the same platforms that have been accused of spreading Islamophobic rhetoric. An example might be Daily Telegraph. On Monday, the headline read, online giant slammed for fostering hatred. Do you think that this might also be a way for mainstream media to deflect some of the responsibility? Yeah,
1: I mean, there's been this ongoing conversation about whether Facebook should be considered a publisher. I mean, from just a competitive perspective, um, Facebook sort of reaps in the the monetary rewards of having the articles posted and people are using platforms like Facebook to, to get their news. So you sort of have to be cognizant of the fact that a lot of the outlets that are critical of the social media platforms also have some other intentions there.
2: I think sometimes um, people also hide behind the difference between embedding material onto websites and linking to it. You know, leaving that link there, there's a kind of uh, distance when you do that. If you embed it, you're almost kind of welcoming it onto your platform. It could be seen by some people. Um, If you stick a link, then you could say you're giving that choice to the viewer or reader to make, and that sort of distances you from that as well. But in terms of um, mainstream media versus social media in places like Facebook, um, there's a lot of competition there, and there's a lot of quite, you know, anger, quite rightly, uh, from the mainstream side, insofar as Facebook and Google and Twitter don't, you know, they they don't do original work. They're essentially, let's face it, what they always were, which is aggregators. So. You know when they do wrong it's quite it's quite to be expected that the mainstream media would point fingers at them because also they're not being taxed properly. there is that as well
3: like regarding i i want I want to agree like it mainstream media is competing with social media also mainstream media no matter what what they publish on their website. They have actual people doing this, and you can bend down the responsibility. So there's an editor in chief, there's a journalist, there's someone who wrote this article. So it's it's really uh, it's really clear what's happening in the mainstream media. So regardless of what kind of spe- on the spectrum, what kind of speech are, it's clear who's who's doing it. While in social media, it's m- mainly driven by algorithm. The way it works is that algorithm drive you to what they call a borderline content when you are if you are if you have a central or a centric kind of view it's at a certain point it becomes not as engaging so they drive you to a little bit to the right to keep you in engaging which is how they monetize so one can can argue that actually social media do help people get radicalized because center is boring and the more you are radicalized, the more addicted to the platform you are and the more they have engagement and the more they monetize. So I think this is a big issue that needs to be tackled that can be found in social media and cannot be found in mainstream media.
0: So I guess it's easy to ask people on a panel show to look into a crystal ball and tell us how to fix this problem. Look, diversity in newsrooms is a really great starting point. Janine, You were posting on Twitter today that you are taking steps to get more diverse voices out there in the media. Could you tell me, could you talk me through it? Yeah,
1: sure. So there aren't too many of us um, working within newsrooms. So a lot of us have sort of connected with each other and I'm also seeking to Speak to journalists from culturally and, lingu- and linguistically diverse backgrounds, Indigenous journalists, about their experiences within newsrooms because there is ostracization there and casual racism and experiences of young journos being pushed out. I'm seeking to speak to young journalists, young aspiring journalists journalists uh, in general young or not about their experiences because the fact is when we speak out when we talk about our experiences we do pay the price and we are held to to different standards as well um and you know i could go on about it for a really long time but that's what i'm 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 seeking to do i really just want to the way i put it was um if anybody's
0: got receipts um pass on your receipts Thank you. That's all we have time for on this edition of 4th Estate. Thank you to our guests, Janine, Abdullah and Colleen. It's been a real privilege to have you all on the program. Uh, look, we, we have talked about some heavy topics in this episode, so if you're listening and this has brought anything up for you and you want to talk to someone about it, please reach out to Lifeline. Uh, their hotline is one three double If you did miss anything from the show, please don't forget to check out our podcast. Uh, If you haven't already, it's where you can find lots of extras. You can also find us on Twitter at 4th Estate AU. My name is Shane Anderson. The producer for this episode was Anthony Dockrell. Thank you for listening.